Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Behavioral Health 2.0. My name is Suki Norris. Today, in this episode, we're further exploring social determinants of health, specifically a continuation of our previous episode, Addressing Incarceration. The focus of this episode is what happens when the prison sentence is over, when the prisoner becomes a parolee, an ex-con, or ex-felon. The one consistent truth is that the individual was released into a world no one prepared them for. Oscar Wilde described prisons as follows. I know not whether laws be right or whether laws be wrong. All that we know who be in jail is that the wall is strong and that each day is like a year, a year whose days are long. Let us look at the causes of the long days and what might make after incarceration time better. To put it simply, persons released from prison have reduced opportunities for jobs, housing insecurity. For many men, the first health care they received was in jail, and now health care is less available, if it's available at all. The loneliness, absence of social cohesion, and lack of civic participation, all which we have talked about before, was experienced in jail and follows them home. When looking for employment, a study found that employers were reluctant to hire someone with a criminal record, especially when the applicant was black. In fact, in this study, a group of men were split into black and white cohorts, each given the same backstory, each given the same information. They went and responded to ads in the paper, and most of the black folks did not get even a callback from the initial contact, where the white folks were actually given interviews, many of whom received job offers. In the last episode, we discussed the transformation of prisons from rehabilitation to warehouses. In this episode, we look at what the difference makes, what that transformation caused. The system to manage the flow of unprepared, released prisoners has not kept pace with the flow of released prisoners or the number of incarcerated prisoners. Not surprising, given the increase in prisoners over the last 20 years, the number of parolees assigned to a single parole officer has almost doubled in that time. At the same time, the reduction of per capita spending on each prisoner is about 24% of what it used to be. The goal of the social determinants of health is to reduce the impact of social inequity on the health of the individual. Yet many persons released from jail suffer from the opposite effect. One study looked at the risk of death after imprisonment, and the study found that released prisoners had a 3.5 times the risk of death as non-incarcerated persons. The risk of death within two weeks of release was 12.7 times more than other non-incarcerated residents. In addition to death by overdose or disease, people released from prison are more likely to commit suicide than in the general population, 3% versus 0.2%. 
So if you survived prison, you still faced an increased chance of death on release. There's another word that is discussed a lot when you talk about incarceration, and that's recidivism. That is the return to crime after release from prison, often resulting in a return to prison. Previously, we covered that many newly incarcerated persons, unemployed, had dropped out of school, and that that prisons, by providing no rehabilitation, we're not surprised that almost two-thirds of released prisoners end up back in jail within three years of release. Half of that two-thirds, or almost 30%, returned to prison within six months. Blacks were about 9% more likely to return to jail than whites. Well, there are many reasons for recidivism. One of the big ones is the failure of jails to deal with mental health issues and substance use disorder. These are primary factors for the recidivism that's going on now. Other factors, of course, include economic insecurity that people find when getting out of jail, the unemployment rate for previously incarcerated persons is five times higher than the unincarcerated population. The formerly incarcerated also experience housing insecurity at the rate of 570 out of every 10,000. If we assume the release of 615,000 formerly incarcerated persons that result over 35,000 housing insecure, the result of that, looking at 570 out of 10,000, is 35,000 housing insecure persons related to incarceration. And if you think about that, think about the number of homeless who came out of prison, had no place to live, and ended up on the streets. Another result faced by the previously incarcerated is in their community, the community that they left. The stigma felt by the previously incarcerated can lead to social isolation and loneliness. Talked about that in previous episodes. The challenges of community reentry compound the challenges faced by the previously incarcerated. So you have the problems of unemployment, of housing insecurity. And now we're going to add to that the challenges of community reentry. We have to address these issues. Do you realize that almost 45% of U.S. adults have experienced the incarceration of a family member? Note that the probability of family poverty will increase by 40% due to the father's incarceration. In addition, family member incarceration and the resulting stress affect family members' mental health and physical health. The acts of the incarcerated puts at risk family safety and economic well-being. Upon release, family members need to decide how best to support the previously incarcerated relation. The risk of recidivism and the lack of economic support are all a part of the family's consideration. In addition, the stigma attached to the former inmate may 
pervade the family, resulting in a possible reduction of available social supports, meaning that government aid is often predicated on your not having been incarcerated. Children are especially affected by the father's incarceration. There are currently approximately 1.7 million children with a parent in jail. Of these 1.7 million, one in 15 is black, one in 42 is Latino, and one in 111 is white. In the face of a father's incarceration, 89% of minor children live with their mother, 13% live with a grandparent, 5% live with another relative, and only 2% live in foster care. In the instance of a mother's incarceration, only 37% live with a father, 45% live with a grandparent, 23% might live with another relative, and 11% live in foster care. Again, as stated, as I covered before, a father's incarceration may cause a reduction in family income. The reduction may force the family to move, cause food insecurity, and bring a stigma felt by the child in relation to the community and, equally importantly, the school. In addition, the father's incarceration may affect the mother and father's relationship, adding additional risk of stigma. While a father's incarceration risks homelessness, as I showed before, a mother's incarceration adds to the risk of foster care. As seen, as I covered before, children have an, whose mother is in prison have an 11% chance of ending up in foster care. We discussed in the last episode the challenges faced by women in prison. So those mothers who are imprisoned have suffer from all those challenges that we've discussed, and children suffer what people call a primal wound caused by abandonment of their mother. While mothers and children attempt to stay in touch, the cost of phone calls and visits is more than many families can afford. Another interesting element is that youth exposed to parental substance use are more likely to follow in their parents' footsteps. But if that exposure occurs before the age of 10, youth have a greater likelihood of exhibiting antisocial behavior, drug use, and heavy drinking. The youth have a greater likelihood of ending up in the criminal justice system. And those records from the criminal justice system will follow them throughout their lives. And remember what the effect of those records are? They affect employment opportunities, access to government programs to healthcare, housing. In a community, the community loses many members to jail and to rearrest upon release. This activity occurs, quite frankly, mostly in communities of color. Incarceration affects to weaken the community and a weakened community cannot provide the needed social supports and social cohesion we've already discussed in previous episodes. It is a dangerous circle. The greater the amount of incarceration, 
the more likely it is that the incarceration rate will grow and the social supports of the community will consistently weaken. It's not surprising that this affects the poorest communities in our country. And if you might remember from a previous episode, as those incarceration rates increase, the fear of going outside, the fear of engaging in any kind of social engagement becomes greater. And loneliness is really the choice that people make. Recently in the news, I think people have talked about this some, but one of the other issues that is really affecting these communities is disenfranchisement. There are only two states that allow universal enfranchisement and two states that disenfranchise anyone with a felony record. 18 states allow everyone to vote except those in prison. And the remaining states have conditions on voting, but allow full or partial enfranchisement of persons with completed sentences. Why is disenfranchisement an issue? If you think about it in terms of what we just discussed, the community, disenfranchisement is a collateral consequence of imprisonment, to be sure. But it is the main consequence that affects communities of color and denies individuals the ability to influence the very laws that put them in jail. And the very consequences of incarceration on the incarcerated and the family. If I want change, I vote for it. If the previously incarcerated want change, they may not be able to vote for it, leaving them powerless. And it is the urban communities and economic costs they cannot recover without enfranchisement. Decide who your county representatives are. Decide who your state representatives are. You have to be able to vote to make those decisions. And I just ask a simple question. What are we afraid of? I have paid my debt to society. Now let me re-engage with society. What are we afraid of? Incarceration also has an interesting effect on census counts that base residents on current address as opposed to the address before incarceration. So the effect is going to reduce the counts in communities with high incarceration rates, reducing resource allocation and even redistricting. So think about it. Not only can't I vote, but because I was in prison when they did the count, I'm not counted where I live. I'm not counted as part of the community that I want to be engaged with. There's a hidden effect of criminality that affects all of us, and that's the cost of prisons. Remember in a previous episode, we talked about that there was approximately $270 billion going towards, uh, of which $88 billion was going towards incarceration. Much of those dollars go to the prison industrial complex, the private sector. Now, we know that President Biden signed an executive order on January 26th, directing the Department of Justice to phase out the use of private prisons. It does not mean the phase out is immediate. In 2019, 18.1% of people incarcerated in the United States were held in private prisons, prisons that 
come under less government scrutiny, have less control. Right now, the private sector currently has the opportunity to profit from both private prisons and mass incarceration because incarceration requires private contracts for health care, food services, laundry, maintenance, and related services. So you might guess that that complex has quite the lobby to ensure those contracts maintain and keep going to the entities that currently have them. We understand the effect of incarceration on the social determinants of health. We should also take the time to understand the effects of the prison industrial complex has on the prison and the prison population. So there are things we can do. We can change sentencing laws. We can put an end to private prisons and improve the challenge. We can improve the ability to address the incarcerated and the released prisoners' needs. How can we change prisons from being warehouses to rehabilitation? And how can we address the specific needs of older inmates, the needs of families, and improve that transition from prison to freedom and the required policy changes? We have to reconsider the availability of programs in prison to provide rehabilitation services. To support this, we really need to open all prison services to public scrutiny, not just the prison families, but to the public at large as a means to develop reasonable standards of care for prisons. One approach to providing services within prisons is faith-based programs. As an example, Operation Starting Line provides entertaining programs to share messages of faith and hope using musicians, comedians, and professional athletes. That lasts about a day. Group meetings will follow involving volunteers. Such programs have increased the participants' ability to cope with the rigors of jail. There are other programs focusing on obtaining a GED, perhaps college training, and work and life skills. This training has also shown positive results for the prisoners who are released. Older prisoners need programs designed especially for them. Programs that promote activity and a sense of contribution will fight boredom and increase social interaction. Prisons should provide training for staff on the specific needs of the older prisoner. Nurses should provide health assessments and provide health information to assist the older prisoner in maintaining their health. Such activity will provide needed stimulation while incarcerated and may assist in preparing the inmate for life after prison. When we think of the families, Sesame Street created a program directly aimed at families with incarcerated family members, the children, big challenges, the incarceration. Initiative, this initiative was designed by the Sesame Workshop and address the needs of children three to eight. It includes a DVD, animated and live action stories, a guide for parents and caregivers, and a children's storybook, as well as an app designed for, cell, for um, cell phone use. The program has proved successful with both kids and adults. The healthcare challenges presented in transition from jail to society often mean that individuals while in jail receive medical services, perhaps the first services they've ever 
really received, but no longer will have access to those services when they leave jail. We should ensure the availability of Medicaid to all individuals released from jail or prison. And we should provide a warm handoff to, from prison to the Medicaid system that the prisoner is going into. What a warm handoff means is people talk to each other. The healthcare within the hospital talks to the community health center that prisoner will be assigned once released. And they explain the conditions and, and pass information and share the health record. Integrating care from incarceration to post-incarceration will help the ex-prisoner maintain care for health and behavioral health-related issues and may, in fact, reduce recidivism. To impact the numbers of people of color impacted by incarceration, we need to look at the root causes. An example is in Oakland, California, where they invested in mixed-income housing and demolished a high-rise public housing unit. They didn't make that population move. They didn't force the population of color to find some other place to go. They provided housing in this mixed-income area. The new neighborhood that these folks were invited to live in includes the availability of services and quality of life that was not existent in the high-rise public housing. A study in Chicago looked at the displacement of crime or the migration of offenders to various areas and looked at how they might address that. Oakland has found that they can address an issue, but really these are only band-aids, but it is a start. The next step requires looking seriously at the underlying causes, including mental health issues, substance use disorder, and perhaps taking some of the $270 billion we're using to put people in jail and address the health and behavioral health needs as an alternative to prison. A few final thoughts. The first are just simple comments, including supporting legislation that provides Medicaid to all released from prison together with a warm handoff of care. With a second provision that provides medication-assisted treatment for those in prison living with substance use disorder. The same treatment people outside of prison are getting routinely. The more complex issue relates to reducing the number of incarcerated persons in the United States. We need to address the truth that we incarcerate more people in the United States than any other country. We need to look at who we incarcerate and why, and what we can do to provide more appropriate treatment, sentencing, and re rehabilitation. We really need to consider who we put in jail that would be better served by education, mental health, substance abuse treatment. And finally, we should take to heart the words of Martin Luther King Jr. The means we use must be as pure as the ends we seek. Thank you. And please join my next episode where we wrap up the first element of social determinants of health, social and community context, by looking at outcome measures that address how well we are meeting the goals within this element. Mm -hmm.